The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 58, The Battle of the Catalonian Plains. We have reached a point in the podcast where we are starting to see the origins of what we know today as the country of France. France derives its name from the Germanic people of Northern Europe who are specifically referred to as the Franks and who we can identify as a distinct group of Germanic tribes who existed during the first millennium BCE. We know that this area of Europe, despite being distant from the typical areas of human origins, that being the Rift Valley, the Mediterranean coasts of Africa and the Fertile Crescent, was still a very important area of the world when exploring the timeline of human history. We often look towards French lands to find out the extent of Neanderthal population and to measure the effects of the ice sheets of the last glacial maximum on human populations. Western Europe even holds secrets to older human populations who migrated to this area as we can find remnants of human activity which date back over a million years. We can find wonderful examples of parietal and portable art dating back tens of thousands of years in the lands of southern France and the adjoining Swabian Jura mountain ranges of western Germany. So the lands in and around France are an essential part of the jigsaw puzzle of prehistory. Our particular story this week takes us to an area roughly 100 miles east of the French capital city of Paris and about 30 miles southeast of the major city of Reims. But it is important to state that the Battle of the Catalonian Plains has been given alternative names such as the Battle of the Catalonian Fields and the Battle of Chalons. The location is in the north of France and with France being such a large country we can identify the cultural differences between northern France and southern France when we make the journey through the first millennium BCE. The less sedentary and tribal nature of the lands of France was compromised by the arrival of the classical world when Greeks landed on France's Mediterranean coast at the far south and started to build an advanced trade network of the Mediterranean with other societies and their colonies. The Greek coastal trading town was called Massalia and this would later become Massilia in the Latin world and Marseille in today's world and we have mentioned this location a number of times during this volume. However, Massalia was founded in the south of the modern country of France and that's around 400 miles south of where today's battle took place and 400 miles is certainly not local. So this is why the history of France took different directions whether you were in the north or the south. We know much more about this history of the South thanks to its proximity to the Roman world than we do about the North. 
the Romans viewed anyone north of the Etruscans and even beyond the Alps as Gallic people and their lands were known as Gaul. So Gaul would occupy lands both north and south of the Alps with the Romans distinguishing the Gauls on their own side of the Alps as Chisalpine Gauls and those beyond the Alps as Transalpine Gauls. The lands of Gaul would have been as far as the Romans dared to think of with a Celtic identity. The Germanic tribes of Northern Europe were not known of or spoken of until Julius Caesar's Roman campaigns in Gaul during the 1st century BCE. The natural boundary of the Celts and the Germans in the world of Julius Caesar was the Rhine River. The site of today's battle is 200 miles west of the Rhine and that is going to be an important factor in this story. So the battle site was very much on the Gallic side of the Rhine. After Caesar's Gallic Wars in the 50s BCE, all of the Gallic lands became provinces of the emerging Roman Empire that was about to replace the Roman Republic. The Catalonian Plains would have been closely linked to the confederation of Belgi tribes, which occupied a large area of Gallic land which stretched from the area of the plains northwards all the way to the North Sea coast. One of the Belgi tribes were the Remi, who were based at an oppidum called Durocoturum by the Romans. An oppidum is a name for a fortified Celtic town. The Remi actually decided to stand alongside the Romans against the other Belgi tribes, so they actually assisted the Roman conquest of Gaul. We certainly know that there was no honour among barbarian tribes. Caesar would defeat the Belgi on his way to conquering the whole of Gaul and the Remi were rewarded with the rule of their locality and this would include the lands of the tribe of the Suessiones. The whole area would become part of the wider Gallia Belgica province of the Roman Empire and this area of Gallia Belgica became very prosperous during the years of the Roman Principate due to its proximity to what was Gallia Belgica's first capital city of Durocoturum, culminating in the establishment of Christian bishoprics in the city and in the nearby settlement of Noviodonum, which was established by the Suessiones. It is important to note that this was the late 3rd century and still a time of Christian persecutions within the Roman Empire. Even though the reign of Constantine the Great did great things for Christian churches within the empire, the decline of the Roman Empire during the 4th and 5th centuries was reflected in the disappearance of wealth in these communities. The Western Roman Empire Those of you who have listened to the episodes of this podcast in sequence will be well aware of the fact that the Western Roman Empire was a product of the wider Roman Empire at the time of its emergence. As a concept, it was developed by the Emperor Diocletian at the end of the 3rd century. It then had altering political significance until its collapse almost two centuries later. The Roman Empire itself was a product of the Roman Republic, which had grown from its early first millennium centre of the city of Rome on the Italian peninsula. 
Originally, it was a kingdom which governed the city-state of Rome and the surrounding countryside. Ethnically, it would have been made up from and heavily influenced by Latins and Etruscans, and due to the competitive nature of the Latin settlements, Rome decided to expand its influence, which had a snowball effect as Rome became a major territory of the Italian peninsula when it brought more settlements under its influence. Other tribes and cultures would take exception to Roman expansion as it encroached on their interests, and so Rome decided that subjugation was the key to survival and began to assert its influence over the Etruscans and the Samnites and start taking control of neighbouring regions, including all of the settlements within. Then over time, this would also end up bringing Rome into conflict with other imperial entities such as the Carthaginians, as Rome's astonishing growth would impact on the economies of its neighbours, and this would lead to large-scale warfare in and around the Mediterranean. And due to the structured organisation of the Roman lands, they were able to effectively and efficiently gather the funds to be able to subsidise such warfare, and then use the wealth of the lands of its defeated enemies to further enhance its economy. This is how the Roman Republic became so large and powerful. At its peak, it would start to subjugate lands a long distance from its central control at Rome, including the lands of Gaul when Julius Caesar campaigned there during the 1st century BCE. The sheer size of the Roman Empire came with its own political challenges as the outlying provinces started developing autonomous natures as they gathered their own wealth and power under their own governors. The provincial governors would use the wealth of its position within the Roman Empire to create powerful armies capable of defending the province against barbarian raids and this would lead to armies becoming more powerful than the empire itself, choosing to nominate its own Roman emperors with no consideration for the opinions of the Roman Senate. However, if two armies put forward two separate emperors then it was highly likely that those armies would be prepared to go into conflict over it, therefore wasting the Empire's resources on civil conflict and risking fragmentation. This led to a prolonged period of chaos during the 3rd century, as emperors would constantly be undermined, assassinated and usurped to the detriment of the Empire as a whole, and it would take the actions of Emperor Diocletian to make a decision that multiple emperors needed to be allowed in order to maintain control and unity of the empire. And this was a decision that was somewhat effective. Although there is an argument to state that things couldn't have actually have been any worse in any case. Diocletian would ask Maximian to take control of the western provinces of the Roman Empire and he would do this from the city of Augusta Trevororum. This is significant for a number of reasons. Firstly, it is the first time that we see a Western entity of the Roman Empire identified for the first time. Secondly, we see that the movement of central authority away from Rome signifies the end of an era when the traditions of Rome and Roman society were being seen as a hindrance to Roman progress. Thirdly, this is interesting because Augusta Trevororum, the modern city of Trier, actually took over from Durocotorum 
as the capital of the Gallia Belgica province. One of the Roman capital cities was now in the traditional lands of the barbarians, showing how powerful Roman influence could make somewhere. The relevance of that to our story this week is to show how valuable these lands would have been to raiders or invaders. During the 4th century, Gallia Belgica would have been subject to attempted raids by Germanic tribes such as the Alemanni, and this shouldn't be hugely surprising as the borderlands of the Roman Empire had always been attractive to the Germanic tribes. Often it would be population pressures that would force the tribes to consider the option of invading the lands of the Roman Empire, but during the 4th century, this pressure would become even worse. The Huns The origins of the Huns is very sketchy, with brief mentions of cultures in historical scriptures that either mention the Huns as a peoples or allude to a culture that may have either been or been closely related to the Huns. Really, we can only discuss what they did after the year 370 because of a lack of written records relating to them beforehand. They were certainly a steppe culture. So we know that they were warriors, we know that they were horsemen, and we know that they were highly mobile, both in everyday life and on the battlefield. It was in the year 370 that the Huns showed a very sudden and aggressive desire to migrate from the lands of the Kazakh steppe into the lands of the Pontic Caspian steppe and beyond. And this would have a knock-on effect on the inhabitants of those lands, such as the Alans and the Goths, and so communities would be slaughtered, assimilated or chased away. Upon pushing westwards and pushing other communities westwards into Europe, it would become a case of when, rather than if, the Roman Empire would be affected by this migration crisis. When barbarians of multiple origin would be knocking at the door of the Roman frontier and forcing the Romans to have to make a political decision about what to do they attempted to allow a barbarian settlement of Roman lands with a mutually beneficial agreement. And although in theory it was a good idea, in practice it ended in bitter feeling and chaos as a number of parties tried to exploit the situation for their own benefit. And military action took place, the highlight being the Battle of Adrianople. At this point the Huns became involved in Roman politics. Some tribes were coerced into becoming mercenary fighters alongside the Romans, enjoying the rewards associated with helping out such a comparatively wealthy empire. Other Huns would just choose to raid Roman lands and live off the booty. It's important to note that they were not a united political entity, with each tribe taking care of its own fortune. Etius Flavius Etius was the son of a military commander called Gaudentius Etius, who served under the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius I in the aftermath of the Battle of Adrianople and its subsequent fallout. Gaudentius seemingly comes from a barbarian background, but he served the Roman Empire, and his son Flavius Etius was born in Durostorum, modern Silistra, on the Bulgarian banks of the Danube River. With his father being a very important servant to the Roman military, Flavius Etius 
could have potentially represented a future emperor if his military training and ability warranted such support from the armies. As such, he would represent a valuable hostage with which to gain a diplomatic edge, a key pawn on the international chessboard. During Etius's young life, the biggest threat to the lands of the Roman Empire were actually the Visigoths, who were failing to find common ground with the Romans, save for a brief period when Theodosius was the emperor. The most celebrated Visigothic leader was Alaric, and he was able to gain possession of the young child Etius as a political prisoner during the first decade of the 400s. After some time, Etius ended up in the Hunnic court of their leader, Aldin. And we're really not completely sure about the circumstances of how this came about, but we can feel confident that Etius was being trained in the ways of both Gothic and Hunnic ways of life, in the hope that he would be of value to them in the future. As an adult, Etius would become an important diplomat between the Hunnic Empire and the Western Roman Empire, as Etius's father was now serving the Romans in Gaul and very likely defending Gallic lands from Germanic raids. Etius would initially support the usurping Western Roman Emperor Ioannis until he was replaced by Valentinian III. Etius may have faced execution for treason had he not have had a lot of support from the Huns and Roman fear of Hunnic invasions enabled Etius to enter a diplomatic situation with the representative of the child emperor Valentinian. Etius would follow in his father's steps by taking on a military role for the Romans in Gaul, where he would be tasked with subduing the rebellious Visigoths and Salian Franks who were conducting various raids for their own self-serving purposes. Etius would have a rival as the senior military commander of the Western Roman Empire, and his name was Bonifatius. Bonifatius would gain the favour of the imperial court over Etius. But Etius would bounce back after Bonifatius was mortally wounded, and the Romans needed to make sure that Etius would not turn a Hunnic mercenary army against them. In 437, Valentinian III would reach his majority and Etius, with his Hunnic mercenaries, remained in favour, dealing the troublesome Burgundians a crippling defeat and managing to subdue and settle barbarian tribes in a bid to maintain peaceful relations and not waste vital Roman military resources unnecessarily. Etius's desire to maintain a good relationship with the Huns would be severely tested by the rise of a new leader of a large group of united Hunnic tribes. Attila The Huns had started to become a notable political entity, with more and more tribes becoming united as a European force under their king Rugila during the 430s. When Rugila died, his nephews Attila and Bleda took control of the coalition of Hunnic tribes as they continued to terrorise the lands of the Eastern Roman Empire. It would appear that Attila had a good understanding with Etius in the Western Roman Empire during this time, 
and so Attila would continue to crank up the pressure on the Eastern Roman Empire higher and higher, and the Eastern Emperor had to bow down to Attila's demands, which didn't relent at all after the death of Bleda, possibly at the hands of his own brother Attila. Attila was in sole command of the Hunnic Empire now, and he was exacting a huge annual tribute from the helpless Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II, who was effectively only able to guarantee the safety of the very well-fortified capital city of Constantinople. It is very difficult to pinpoint accurately the turning point in the relationship between Attila and the Huns, and Etius and Western Rome, but we do know that things were heading towards a conflict between the two men when it became apparent that the Western Roman Empire was coming into the sights of Attila. It could have been due to the death of Theodosius II, leading to his successor Martian, effectively reneging on all previous agreements between Eastern Rome and the Huns, that Attila decided that his attentions were best suited by changing his focal target to the weakening Western Roman Empire. The prime lands that Attila would set his sights on were the lands of Gaul, and these were the lands that Etius had defended on Western Rome's behalf for many years. Despite any tenuous links between Attila and Etius, Attila only had loyalty to himself and he would not allow the fact that a comparative friend of the Huns in Etius was the primary military general of Western Rome stand in the way of his ambitions. However, Attila would need to formulate a reason to invade the lands of Gaul in order to authenticate it among Hunnic tribes, especially those in mercenary service of the Western Roman Empire. Prelude to the Battle the road to conflict was paved by a woman called Justa Grata Honoria. Honoria was the oldest sister of the Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III and as such, her hand in marriage was a major diplomatic deal waiting to be made. Valentinian III knew it and Attila the Hun knew it. Valentinian would deny Honoria any kind of say in regard to her own love life and would swear her to celibacy, not particularly unusual for a Roman emperor's sister though. Apparently Honoria was caught being intimate with a chamberlain, and Valentinian III had to act quickly to prevent the proverbial from hitting the fan. Valentinian would quickly organise for Honoria to be married to an inoffensive aristocrat called Bassus Herculanus, and apparently Honoria was having absolutely none of it. By all accounts, the rebellious sister decided to make a proposal to the Emperor of the Huns, Attila. Her dowry would be half the Western Roman Empire. Now, this is quite the coincidence that just as the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II had died and denied Attila his Roman cash cow, as his successor had closed the door on any further tributes, Attila would now have the perfect excuse to steal half of Valentinian's empire. Valentinian III would have to act fast if he was to prevent Attila marching into Roman Gaul and conducting the same levels of terror and bloodshed that he had subjected Moesia and the Balkans to during the previous decade. 
Etius knew all too well that the Gallic lands that he, alongside the Hun mercenaries, had been defending was now being threatened by Attila and he was not prepared to risk his own high standing within the Roman Empire to Attila, regardless of any Hunnic connection he had had previously. Etius would turn to the Visigoths for their support under King Theodoric. If this name sounds familiar, then it is just a coincidence. The Theodoric we have mentioned already was Theodoric the Great of the Ostrogoths, who was the arch-nemesis of Odoacha a couple of generations after this period. Theodoric I of the Visigoths had been an enemy of the Suevi, but the Hunnic invasion of Gaul would have eventually led Attila to the boundaries of Visigothic territory, and so Theodoric I had great reason to form a military alliance with Etius. Many other tribes that could suffer the consequences of a successful Hunnic invasion of Gaul would also be quick to pledge their support of the defence of Gaul. This would include the Salian Franks, who were an ethnic group of Franks legally settled in Roman Gaul, and the Burgundians, who had been subjected to Hunnic aggressions in the past themselves. In typical Hunnic fashion, Attila would have the support of those peoples that he had assimilated through conquest, such as the Gepids, alongside many other Germanic tribes. Attila would cross the Rhine from east to west, moving swiftly into Gaul and sacking many cities before he would go on to besiege the city of Orléans. It is possible that this siege took longer than anticipated because Etius and Theodoric were able to approach Orléans and this caused Attila to hastily abandon the siege and retreat, reportedly leaving a contingent of Gepids to face Etius and Theodoric and buy Attila some time. It is said that Etius made short work of the Gepids and continued to pursue Attila, who would set up camp at a preferred location to engage in battle. The numbers reported are highly questionable. Some historians have reported hundreds of thousands, but there is suspicion of only tens of thousands, as this was more typical of an army size of this era. The problem is that we have sketchy accounts of the battle, so we have to just try to make sense of what we can use for reference. We can feel confident that Attila and his Huns would have had plenty of expert light cavalry capable of high-speed impact archery offence. They would have been supported by large numbers of the infantry. Traditionally, barbarian infantry behaved in a much more impulsive manner, very likely to be viewed as somewhat maniacal by the more disciplined Roman legionaries. The Visigothic contingent of the Roman army would have certainly also not have had the same trained discipline of the Roman legionaries, but the Visigoths had proven themselves to be highly effective militarily for many decades, stretching back to the Battle of Adrianople, which was just slipping away from living memory. The Roman legionaries were much more likely to act as a unit with individuals armed with swords, spears and javelins. There would have been more in the way of heavy cavalry in the Roman allied army, slower moving than the Hunnic cavalry, but sporting more in the way of armour. The Battle of the Catalanian Plains 
Attila wanted to fight on open plains to be able to utilise his shock cavalry archer attacks. However, the landscape was still quite undulating and Attila didn't see that higher ground would present much advantage to him. So the Romans were able to take the higher ground with Attila preferring to be less visible to as many Romans as possible on the lower ground, which would allow him to deploy his archers somewhat sneakily. The battle is said to have commenced halfway through the afternoon, and we can't be clear about why that was. Attila would have his hardcore homegrown Hunnic warriors at the centre of his formation, which would be flanked by his Ostrogothic allies to his left and the remains of his Gepid allies to his right. The Gepids had lost large numbers of their troops after the siege of Orléon. The Roman formation placed the Visigoths under the command of Theodoric on their right flank, which actually meant that they were facing their Gothic cousins, the Ostrogoths. On the Roman left flank were the Alans, under the command of their king Sangiban. Many other allies of Europe's various ethnicities added to the diverse mix of both armies, as we can really view this as a European-wide battle, with the outcome having certain repercussions for all of the races of Europe, which is why so many peoples were involved. It appears that the priority when the battle began was to take command of the ridge in the centre of the battlefield. The Visigoths had control of the ridge at the start of the battle, but the Huns made a surge for the ridge. The Alans would then cross in front of the Romans to double up the effort to defend the ridge from the Huns alongside the Visigoths. And this was a good thing because when the Ostrogoths joined the Hunnic push, the Visigoths would need to engage them. It may have been at this point that Etius's most respected ally, the Visigothic king Theodoric, was killed. This could have been hugely demoralising for the Roman side. If anything, it seems that the Visigoths became more fired up as they started getting the upper hand over the Ostrogoths. The remnants of the Gepids tried to engage the Romans, but the Romans managed to separate the Gepids from their Hunnic allies. Considerable blood was shed on this battlefield, with historians making particular note of how bloody the conflict became. Attila feared that his army were on the back foot and desperately tried to rally his men by reminding them of the glory of victory and the shame of defeat. However, the Visigothic success against the Ostrogoths meant that they could now push the Huns backwards and so the Huns found themselves retreating. The Hunnic cavalry and archers were ineffective against the sheer weight of advancing Visigoths and Alans. Etius himself was preventing any Gepid support from the Huns' right flank. The Huns ended up backed into the area of their camp, where they would be able to hold off the Roman advance thanks to the end-of-day darkness and the lethal element of their archers as a consequence. The Romans had no choice but to back off themselves. Further battle was impossible in darkness. Aftermath 
Both armies may have been ready to engage again at first light the following morning, but the reality of what had taken place the day before seemed to hit home when the sheer amount of casualties became apparent. It seems that the reluctance of both sides to do further battle ensured that the Hunnic invasion of Gaul would not be allowed to continue and Attila decided to retreat to safer lands to reconsider his next military action. This was a big moment because if you recall from the build-up, there had been nothing to prevent the Huns from doing as they wished. They had washed away the Germanic tribes of the lands of Central and Eastern Europe. They had ravaged the Balkan lands of the Eastern Roman Empire and bullied Constantinople into a submissive agreement, exacting high levels of tribute. Attila, as a leader, typified the frightening Huns that had shown themselves to be the ultimate barbarian race. What Etius had done with his allies is stop the unstoppable. Attila regrouped in his Hungarian heartlands and planned an invasion of Italy and possibly even the cultural capital city of Rome. However, for some reason Attila did not attack Rome and headed back to his heartlands again in a story re-rounded off during last week's episode number 57. We learned that Attila never married Valentinian III's sister Honoria but he did get married and managed to die during the celebrations, possibly by simply choking on his own blood. The Hunnic Empire would fragment and slowly diminish. Etius should have been celebrated as a Roman hero, but all too often during ancient times we can find out that just a small shift in the political landscape can leave heroic achievements to very rapidly become distant memories. Etius had always been the main representative of Western Roman Empire, with Valentinian III doing very little himself. Valentinian had become the emperor as a child, and it seems that he never really grew into the role. With Etius's famous victory over the Huns, it may have been that Valentinian became paranoid that Etius would be plotting to overthrow him in what could have been a popular usurpation considering that the Romans had been losing territory to the Vandals, especially in North Africa and Sicily. It is likely that Valentinian was influenced by others around him, but on one fateful day in 454, Etius, now in his early 60s, was murdered by Valentinian in a council arena. Valentinian had just killed his nation's guardian and as such had increased the vulnerability of the Western Roman Empire by killing the man who would become known as the last great Roman military leader. Valentinian himself would go on to be assassinated himself the following year possibly by allies of Etius. But it is speculated that the deaths of both Etius and Valentinian were orchestrated by a Roman senator called Petronius Maximus, who took the throne of the Western Roman Empire for himself, before he himself was killed during the Vandal sacking of Rome less than three months later. The Western Roman Empire 
would never really recover from this turmoil as things continued to go downhill before key Germanic tribal leaders would begin asserting their authorities over former Roman lands and provinces, which would ultimately include the Italian peninsula when Odoacer, with the blessing of the Eastern Roman Empire, overthrew the Western Roman Emperor and declared himself the King of Italy, signalling the end of the Western Roman Empire. It is actually suggested that Odoacer as a young man may have even been on that battlefield on the side of Attila 25 years previous. By now though, just a generation later, both the Hunnic Empire and the Western Roman Empire had disappeared from the European map. The legacy of the battle shows that European culture had been preserved and protected on that day from invasion from a people's Asiatic in origin. A Hunnic victory may have turned Europe in a totally different direction and European history could have ended up travelling down an unrecognisably alternative route as a consequence. Nevertheless, we can see that the steppe Asiatic invasions of Roman territory caused far more impact than any of the Persian invasions. This could have simply been because the Germanic frontier of the Roman Empire was both far more accessible to foreign invasion and far more chaotic in its politics and warfare. Undoubtedly though, the organised large military units that had been so successful for many centuries of the classical world cultures, which developed from Greek phalanx warfare, was now being challenged by the high-speed impact and unpredictability of barbarian warfare, which was calling towards a much more recognisably medieval style of military. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast episode. It was quite a, a long one. I, I just kept writing and writing and writing and I, and I couldn't stop, but... It really is a fascinating story of uh, two great 5th century um, military leaders, Etius and Attila. And um, I think um, it's one of those stories that if you like um, your uh, medieval history, so the, like, I mean, this really is the, the birth of medieval warfare and history and that kind of thing. So um, I think... Um, I think it's fascinating to see the transition between classical Rome and medieval Europe, and I think this is like quite a uh, a an important part of that transition. Uh, but um, really good fun to write that episode. But um, that's it now, really, for the step cultures. And the, and the next time we talk about step cultures will be um, in a couple of episodes' time. Uh, but from a completely different vantage point. So when we get into the Kushans, who were these Scythians who sort of migrated um, out of um, the steppe and south into the, the lands of the Indian subcontinent. Um, and so we'll be visiting that period. But we've really, before we can do that, we have to sort of catch up. Um, from the end of the Indus Valley civilization, when that civilization disappeared, we need to work out what happened next and explore the coalescence of uh, societies around the Ganges River, uh, for example, 
and um, and follow the story right up until uh, sort of Chandragupta and and the Mauryan Empire, that kind of thing. So that's where we're heading off to next. We're going to be leaving Europe behind and no more Rome for those of you who are, t- who are terribly bored by Rome. <laughs> Um, we're going to be moving on, don't worry. We're going to go to India, and uh, there's a lot of fascinating stuff to talk about when it comes to India during this period. So, a complete, uh, completely different uh, shift of focus, um, which uh, will maybe for some long overdue, but you know, it's uh, it's going to be worth the wait. Let's jump straight into listener messages. I've got a few this week, uh, Brian. Uh, has written in and has put, um, I think that these are simply awesome. I enjoy them most on YouTube because of all the graphics of the podcast. Can I get the rest of them on YouTube somewhere? Currently up to, I'm up to volume two, episode three, Ancient Egypt, the Middle Kingdom. Well, um, the YouTube channel is actually, um, it's not really my work actually. You can you can certainly hear my audio files on there, but the, but the videos themselves are put together by Nick Barksdale, who runs the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, and, it, and he actually got in touch with me today, and um, he's looking forward to um, recreating the episode on the Picts. Now, the Pictish episode was a special episode which he commissioned, um, thanks to all of his help for um, helping me with the podcast um, and and taking it onto a different platform, um, I offered to write this episode for him and, and now I believe he's making a video of it. And um, we probably don't talk about the Picts enough, so it's uh, it's nice to give them a bit of time in the spotlight. And, um, you know, if, if you ever get the chance to visit Scotland and... and go to such places as Urquhart Castle on the Loch Ness, for example, then uh, you'll get to sort of go be transported back into that world. So um, fascinating for me, I suppose, because I live in the British Isles, so I will probably get more than out of that just through that um, through that direct experience, I suppose. But um, interesting nonetheless. Lynn Dowling wrote in and she wrote me a nice long message and... Uh, a big support of the podcast and uh, thank you Lynn and, and I've um, I've read through it and it was a lovely email that you sent and I really do appreciate it so thank you and um, Dan Winkleman who's uh, also another friend of the podcast uh, wrote in saying hello Chris I wanted to thank you for the fine podcast it's been of great comfort during the pandemic I am listening from Snowy PA in the States I enjoyed the last uh, the latest episode on Attila my question is, can you tell me where he buried his gold? I have heard it was never found. Um, the uh, the story of um, now now I, I'm not totally familiar with Attila's gold, but um, I'm wondering if we're talking about the story of the Italian city, um, which um, which was besieged by Attila. And um, and as such, they buried their treasure and, and deserted their city because uh, I think they feared that Attila would um, um, would overthrow the city. So they knew that the writing was on the wall and they knew that they had to get out, really. And so they buried all their treasure to come back to it at a later time when Attila hopefully like uh, disappeared off somewhere else and they could recover their, their, their broken city but still have their treasures. So... Uh, like uh, this, I think the story is they built a 
or they dug a great pit and just slung all their treasure in it, but it, it was never found. How true that is, I've got no idea. Um, but uh, certainly it was after the after the story of today's battle, actually, when Attila sort of retreated back to the Hungarian plains and, and then revised his schedule to go and attack the Italian peninsula. So I, th I think it was during that period. But um, if anyone knows more about that, please do write in. I'm, I'll be interested because it's something I haven't read much about. Uh, but thank you anyway, Dan. That was a great message that you've written in. Thank you. Um, Connie uh, Vestervorder has written in saying, I think I love you, um, which is a, a wonderful message to receive um, considering it's Valentine's Day uh, now. I believe it's uh, Valentine's Day. And um, so, so it's very rare for me to receive a message like that. So thank you. But um, she goes on to write, I thought that would get your attention. So it was, it, it was obviously a bit of a, a ruse to... To uh, to draw, draw me in, I've been I've been uh, hook, line, and sinkered there, haven't I? Thank you, Chris, for a wonderful, well thought out, easy to follow podcast. I'm trying to walk six miles every day, and your podcast makes it interesting to learn about the world we live in. I am only up to podcast eight, but every minute you keep it interesting. As I'm from California, I enjoy hearing your accent. The website information is so helpful. Thank you for all you do. Uh, Connie, thank you, Connie. That's a very, very uh, kind message, and, and it's great to hear that you're walking. And 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 I I do that myself actually. And um, sadly, I mean, one I'm I'm going back to listening to Kevin Stroud's History of English podcast, which I think is absolutely fascinating, and I I find it hard to not keep going back and revisiting that podcast. But sometimes when I'm going on long walks, I I enjoy long walks myself, and um, when I'm going out for long walk, I'll sometimes, and, and this might sound like somewhat vain, but I'll sometimes listen to my old episodes uh, just so I can probably pick them apart and, and rewrite them. So I'm like, I'm, I'm constantly making notes about my older episodes, which I listen to and I think, oh, blimey, I can't, I can't believe that was that bad back then. And I'm, um, I'm hopefully going to be able to re-record some of them on the strength of it, but there's only so much of my voice I can listen to before I start going around the bend, so it's, it's nice to hear that you're enjoying the accent at least. Right, let's quickly jump into reviews. So we've got a number of reviews have come through. Um, we've got uh, one from Riley Elder from Canada who's put uh, top quality stuff. Your timeline helps stitch together ancient history while allowing listeners to branch off to topics of their interest. Riley from Canada. Uh, Tom Patton uh, from the United States of America has written great history podcast, well written and fun, as well as enriching to hear. Thanks for your work. I look forward to more episodes. Tom Patton, Richland, WA, USA. And CJC1514, also from the United States of America, has put history podcasts, great podcasts, and an easy voice to listen to. History from the dawn of man to the Huns, our current point in the story. Um, JLH8769 from Canada has put Jay listening from China. Oh, that's a bit different from Canada. China, Canada. Have loved history since I was very young. Really enjoying this podcast. I'm learning a lot about new areas of history and love refreshing my understanding of my favourite eras. Have listened from the beginning. Great way to pass my time constructively. 
And then finally, we've got Princef, Princeps Passis uh, from Great Britain has put History of the World, a fantastic series of podcasts, accessible yet informative with amazing detail. It has fleshed out my meagre knowledge of the origins of our species to, uh, um, and our ancient history. I'm looking forward to listening to Volume 3. Many thanks to the presenter, writers and producers. Oh, good, that's great. Um, well, I, I've got to be a little bit impressed by the fact that you've, you've put that in the plural. There's there's just one presenter, writer and producer, and that's me, unfortunately. So, um, But wonderful messages, and, and I thank you all so much for writing in. And, and the reviews really help to propel the podcast. Um, up in the ratings of, of the various podcast platforms so don't forget to rate and review if you haven't done that already and then obviously if you want to support the podcast further you can do that and just go to the history of the world podcast.com uh, website and uh, click on the patreon link and sign up to make a monthly donation. We give out rewards for sustained donations. You don't have to sort of donate astronomical amounts every month to qualify for my rewards. I will um, quite happily give them to you for accrued donations over a length of time, so you can still qualify. You don't have to spend all your money at once. Um, but if you want to support the podcast, you're more than welcome to, and then we'll give you, give you a shout out, and you'll become a, a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You'll be able to tell your, your friends, family, your, your local shop, you'll be able to go in there and, and tell them. Um, you'll be able to tell your boss at work. You can phone up um, your boss and tell him that you're a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. They, they will all be um, incredibly impressed by that claim to fame so uh, go go and do it now go and sign up for as little as one dollar a month help to keep the podcast alive uh, one individual who certainly will be able to do that uh, will be Andreas Frobry who uh, who joined the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week um, so there you go there you go it's as simple as that Anyway, I'm going to wrap up this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining me again. And thank you all for supporting the podcast. And, and even if you, all you do is just listen to it, um, I'm sure that does um, good things in terms of uh, the the statistical um, status of the History of the World podcast. So uh, thank you to all of you, each and every one of you. And let's, uh, let's help each other get through this uh, this naughty pandemic. And... Um, and uh, well, let's uh, let's all meet again in seven days. Let's all meet up again in seven days. Obviously, abiding by the rules. Our meetings are abiding by the rules because we're doing it over the podcast airwaves, so we're not going to get um, arrested. Uh, so it's perfectly legal. And uh, we'll meet up next week and start talking about the ancient cultures of India. I can't wait. It's going to be incredibly fascinating to move on to that area of the world yet again. And uh, long overdue, but um, good to be back. And uh, we'll do that all again next week. But until we meet up again next week, uh, just make sure to be good. Come to the History of the World podcast.com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati.
drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.